1 Corinthians chapter 6. We ended up chapter 5, Paul challenging them, this Corinthian church, somewhat immature. Remember, he called them carnal. They're carnal Christians. They were factioning and dividing and all of the rest. Paul is beside himself. This is his problem child church. He loves the church, the Thessalonica church. Read First and Second Thessalonians. They have a great relationship. He just adores them. But the Corinthian church, oh man, this is his problem child church. They are tough and wearing him out. So he challenges them in chapter five to clean house. In other words, their sin, ongoing, flagrant, blatant sin, and rather than dealing with it, confronting it, they're actually proud of it. They're actually proud of how gracious they are and how loving, quote unquote, loving they are to allow sin to occur unchallenged in their midst. So Paul challenges them from the Passover. By the way, I mentioned last week the Passover and how the lamb would be sacrificed. This comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus. The lamb would be sacrificed. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread would happen seven days. And the first day of the feast, they would go through the house and anything that had a leavening agent in it, anything that had yeast, breads and cakes or whatever else you need to rise or need to use leaven for, it would all have to be gotten out of the house. And now the Passover happens what time of the year? Do you know? Happens in the spring. So some say that our current practice of spring cleaning comes from a direct descendant of this Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sounds good to me. I'll buy it. I don't do it, but I'll buy it. (laughs) Now chapter 6, he begins dealing with another problem. And again, he makes it general. It applies to all, but it's probably like in chapter 5, an issue of sexual immorality in chapter 5. Chapter 6, there's probably a specific issue in the church where two people are taking each other to court from the church. And so Paul takes that and uses that as an example and it widens that out and says, hey, this should never happen. Believers should never take each other to court. Now, you have to remember a couple things. Number one, as we read through this, you'll see I counted, maybe you'll count different, I counted 10 questions in 11 verses. He's just pummeling them with questions. And some of those questions, many of them, I think six, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? So what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to live is based on what they should know. And it's not that they didn't know. The answer isn't, oh, well, Paul, we didn't know. When he says, don't you know, the implication is you do know, and therefore your behavior should be tailored to the fact that you do know this. Sometimes I scratch my head. You hear a sermon, you listen to a message, and then out you go, and you're laying on the horn and someone going around the circle on the way to lunch. And it's like, don't you know, we just talked about these things in church. What happens between here, the seats, and and out there? So Paul's telling them, look, you know these things. And remember, in Greek culture, wisdom, rhetoric, debate, eloquence, these things were highly valued. And Athenians, Athens was just 50 miles from Corinth, so they're connected in a way. The Athenians spent all day just wanting to hear new things. They just loved to hear new things. And that was their form of entertainment. They didn't have 150 cable channels and YouTube. They didn't have that. So entertainment for them, they didn't go out to the movies. They had plays, but they listened to public debate. And that was entertaining them. Ooh, could this guy build a better argument than that guy? Ooh, who won the debate? And for them, going to law was a very common practice because these things happened out in the public arena. The Bema seat, the seat of judgment, was right there by the marketplace. And so for them, going to hear a court case was like us. You'd turn on daytime TV, court TV, 
You've got Judge Judy. How many of you have seen Judge Judy on daytime TV? Oh, you're not willing to admit it, right? I see her, but I'm not admitting it right now. I think she's so cool. I mean, like, I watch her and I go, oh, I want to, like, just say the things I want to say. And she's down through her glasses, get out of my courtroom, you know. <laughs> and Judge Joe, it's an entertainment kind of thing. When O.J. Simpson was on trial, TV stations interrupted coverage of the 1998 NBA Finals to broadcast the incident live. It was watched by an audience of 95 million people. And just recently, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, 20 million people watched that horror unfold and details. I mean, it was a shame to have to watch them relive this 36-year-old thing in front of everybody, the whole 20 million people. You have to hear all this. So the Greeks, famous for their love of going to law, William Barclay remarks that a jury, if your civil case went to law, it could possibly be heard by a jury from 40 people up to 6,000 Athenian citizens. Now, how do you get a verdict with 6,000 jurors? I have no idea. But William Barclay, commentator, said in a Greek city, every man is more or less a lawyer and spent a very great part of his time deciding or listening to law cases. So I give that as background because that'll help us understand when Paul says, dare any of you having implications as a legal matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before saints. He says, how dare you guys? Paul's breaking bad on these guys, isn't he? He's laying it on. How dare you guys go to law against one another? That's the first problem. You're taking each other to court. Now, we're talking civil matters. Now, as I present this and we build this case through here and how it applies to us today, I want to make sure that we differentiate between civil and criminal law. See, criminal law seeks punishment. Civil law seeks restitution. In criminal cases, charges are brought by the state because laws are broken. It's between the state and the individual. But in civil law, it's one individual against another. Now, Paul had no problem with the Roman judicial system. Matter of fact, do you remember in the book of Acts, he appeals to Caesar himself. So he's not down on all Roman law. And in fact, he uses it for his own benefit in a way. Matter of fact, in Romans 13, Paul says we should obey the governing authorities. So it's not that we disregard, hey, we're the church, we do our own thing, we take care of our own matters. We take care of civil matters, criminal matters are a matter of the state. Sometimes there's civil and criminal implications, but I want you to see the issue Paul is dealing with are civil matters. People going to law against each other. Probably some material thing, some offense, some sort of unfairness, a property type of issue. These are the majority of civil cases have to do with property and material. And then you go to court because you can't agree on how to handle it, who's responsible, what's owed for the damages. And it can get really messy. I mean, I know around here, boy, when I get the phone call, hi, Pastor Steve, this is so-and-so. Hey, what's up? Well, you know, my husband and I, we have some work that needs to be done in our house, and we just love to give the business to a Christian person. So can you recommend someone from the church? I said, oh, man. I stopped recommending people a long time ago. I say, look, there's people in our church that do that kind of work, but buyer beware, do your research. Because what inevitably happens is we recommend somebody and then say, never drop a contract. We're Christians, you know, we can handle this. There's nothing on paper. There's a misunderstanding, different expectations. And then they're both leaving the church. Everybody's mad at the church. They're mad at each other. And the next thing you hear, they're taking each other to court. See, we have good intentions as Christians, right? We really want to help a brother out. 
but sometimes it can go so wrong. And I've learned that Satan loves it when God's people get into business deals together, especially when people aren't mature. Remember, the Corinthian Christians are immature. They're carnally, they're worldly focused. And when immature people get into business dealings together, or you say, I want to hire a Christian to work with me. So you hire somebody from the church and they stop showing up for work or they steal from you. They said they were a Christian. And do you know what I'm talking about? We see these things happen. So Paul is not put out that it happens. Anytime you're going to be in relationships with people, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have misunderstanding. You're going to have offensibility. And more and more in our day. So Paul's not put out that it's happened, but that they're not able to solve the problem within the church. And that's what he says to them. Just a quick public service announcement. If you get into a real estate deal, a business deal, even though it's a Christian, put it in writing. Because if it's not in writing, no one can remember what's been said. My memory is so bad. I don't remember what I told you. I don't remember what you told me. But if it's in writing, then that can clear up 95% of all the problems. If you just say, I trust you. It's not that I don't trust you. But for both of our memories, let's just put it on paper together. And then when there's an argument, you go, oh, well, here, look, we wrote it down two months ago. Oh, yeah, right. I forgot I said that. Oh, okay. You're right. Sorry. I'll honor what I said. So that takes care of 95% of the problems. And for the other 5%, we'll see what Paul says here. But remember, the problem is that they're going to law, not before the saints, not with the church, but before the, notice the word unjust or unrighteous. That word's going to come up three times before unbelievers, before people They're looking for judgment, in their cases, from people who are under the judgment of God. Does that make sense? These are people living under the judgment of God. They're unbelievers. They're worldly, pagan people. And that God's people are going to them for help. So Paul's just scratching his head going, where in the world did you think this would make sense? So verse 2, he says, don't you know, the first of his don't you knows, and the second question he asks, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world would be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest? You can write next to that in your Bible, insignificant matters. So he lays on them something they already know. And he's going to argue from the greater to the lesser. The New Testament doesn't say a whole lot about this. He says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? That sounds pretty cool to me, doesn't it? Not now. We don't judge the world now. Our domain is the church. Our domain is civil matters within the church not criminal law. We don't judge the world now. But there's a day when Jesus will rule and reign. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Do you know what I'm talking about? The end times, the kingdom, when it's in its fullness and Christ is ruling and reigning on earth. Well, I'll put it to you this way. This is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot disown himself. So did you catch that verse? If we endure, we will also reign with him. So all of Paul's theology is built around the fact that we are united together to Christ. When we got saved, when we gave our life to Christ, we're attached to Christ in such an intimate way that when he was crucified on the cross, we were crucified with him. When he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. If he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we are seated there with him. And when he reigns, guess what, folks? We will reign with him. But pastor, what does that look like? I have no idea. It sounds really cool, though. 
but I have no idea what that's going to look like. And Paul, his purpose isn't to elaborate on that doctrine. His purpose is to say, you know, you are going to judge the world with Christ in the future. And if that's true, you're going to judge the world. Are you unworthy to judge these little insignificant matters of the now? I mean, the greater to the lesser. If you can run a marathon, is it safe to assume you can run a mile? Say yes. If you can do this great thing over here, if you can build a public high school here in Fluvanna County, if you can be in charge of building that, you could probably build a playhouse for your kids. Is that a safe assumption? That's what Paul's saying. And notice, this is subtle, but don't miss it. He says, are you unworthy to judge the smallest or the most insignificant matters? Whatever it is they're arguing about, whatever the issue is, he says, it's insignificant. How many of you would agree that so many of the issues we face, the offenses, the issues with other people are insignificant? But pastor, it's $1,000. You're going to inherit the kingdom of God. What's $1,000? To some people, yeah, $1,000 is a lot of money, but you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You don't take it with you. Job said, naked you came in, naked you're going out. It's insignificant. And God has resources you don't even know. If you trust him, He'll take care of you. I told you my story a couple weeks ago during the forgiveness message, about $800. Lord, you can take care of it. And you know what? My wife and I have never gone hungry. So many of these things. Compared to eternity, Paul says, you can judge in these little insignificant matters that are going on in the church. Then he gives another argument from greater to lesser, or actually from one domain to another. He says, do not know that we shall judge angels? how much more things that pertain to this life. So he uses the classic Jewish how much more argument. If human fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, Jesus says, then how much more God? I mean, if we as human beings love to bless our kids and we're human and we're sinful, how much more than God will love to bless his children? Do you see the example? You see the comparison? And that's what Paul does here. If we're going to judge angels, if we're going to have judgments in the spiritual realm, now what does that look like? Again, I have no idea. There's not a whole lot in the Bible. We do know, 2 Peter chapter 2, that there were fallen angels that were judged. They stopped submitting to God. They sinned, and they were cast into chains, awaiting future judgment. You can read that, 2 Peter 2, 4. Did you know angels could sin? That changes the whole meaning when you look at your child and you say, oh, he's such a little angel. (laughs) maybe so (laughs) the question is what kind of angel (laughs) so they're reserved under chains for judgment sometime in the future what is our role in judging angels what paul is trying to say is we are going to be above angels in that realm a judging matters whether it's just the fallen angels or whether it's the angelic realm there's not a whole lot but again paul's issue paul's purpose is not to teach on the judgment of angels how the church is going to judge angels His point is, look, we have a role in the spiritual realm. Then how much more things that pertain to this life? I mean, Paul just said it at the end of chapter two. The natural man, the person without the spirit, doesn't know the things of God. A person who does not have the spirit of God, a person who doesn't know God's word, cannot possibly judge correctly. They can't see things right. They can't see things through the eyes of God. And that disqualifies them from actually making right judgments about things. Now, sometimes people get lucky. Even a squirrel gets a nut once in a while, a blind squirrel. You know how that saying goes. And people in the world understand, in some sense, love and forgiveness, in a sense, but not like we do, or not like we should, and the Corinthians should. 
And that's why Paul is hammering them in this. From the greater to the lesser, from one realm to another, again, things that pertain to this life, these are temporary issues. These are insignificant things. And then he says, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, if and since you do, is the idea, then do you appoint those who are, catch it, least esteemed by the church to judge? So it's bad enough you guys are having these conflicts, you guys are arguing about things, you're cheating each other. That's bad enough, but we can deal with that. But the problem is, now you have issues pertaining to this life, and somehow you feel like God has nothing to say about the things of this life, that all God can speak about is eternal things. And listen, things of this life have eternal value. Not the material part, but how we deal with people, how we deal with situations. There are eternal implications to the things of the now. And yet why, he says, it's crazy that you would appoint people that are outsiders, outside the family, outside of God. We call them the experts. You know, we live in the expert culture. And I'm not sure that God is an expert on anything anymore in our lives. We come to church and we enjoy the entertainment and we hear a message from the Bible. But when it comes down to really, I need real help here, Steve. I need real help, Pastor. The Bible's great, but I need psychiatric evaluation. I need help. I need real help. In other words, God has nothing to say about our psychological state. Are you kidding me? God has nothing to say about offenses between people. So we go to the experts. You've watched Judge Judy. Not everybody gets the outcome that they want, even in Judge Judy's court. Not everybody gets it their way. Look at this. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? You got to hear the sarcasm. He catches them in their own contradiction. I mean, Paul is brilliant. Remember what they were saying? They were claiming that they were so wise. They were puffed up about their own wisdom. And now Paul says, oh, you're so wise, are you? Oh, you're so full of wisdom, and you can't even judge matters in your own church, in your own cases? He catches them. And he says, is there not a wise man among you who can judge between his brethren? Paul's speaking of getting a mediator. Look, there's something's gone down. Someone cheated you. Someone wronged you. Something happened, and you can't work it out between the two of you. Which is the best step? Matthew 18, the best step. You just work it out between the two of you. Take responsibility for what you did. That alone would go far. If people just took responsibility, it was an accident, it was a mistake, it was misunderstanding, I ran into your car, I ran over whatever it is, I broke your lawnmower, I'll replace it. How many of you have ever lent something out and had somebody break it and bring it back in pieces? Yeah, it happens. So Paul's going to tell us, look, either expect that you're going to lend something out, it's going to get broken, it's going to happen. Or don't lend your stuff out, just be selfish. You can do that too. But this is where maturity comes in. Christian maturity comes in. He says, look, you can get a media. We do this all the time. And guess what? One of the great things about doing it here and not on the outside is we do it for free. We do it for free here. Mediation in the world, average salary or average hourly rate for mediation by a lawyer, mediation arbitration, it's $162 an hour. It's part of our family life. We work through our issues together. Paul's going to elaborate on this some more, but he says, I say this to your shame. He takes his finger at them and he says, church, Corinthian church, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. That's pretty heavy words, isn't it? Paul's, he's giving them some tough love. He's not coddling them. And it is, it's a shame. If 
I have to go down to the Fluvanna court and you see two people, believers there, hashing it out in front of the judge, and then someone elbows me and says, hey, Steve, don't those two go to your church? Oh, no. It's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment. But see, here's the problem. For most people, the church lacks authority. In chapter 5, it was authority over morality and ethics. Don't tell me what sin is and what sin isn't. Don't judge my life regarding sin. God has no authority to tell me what to do and what not to do. And then in this chapter, God has no authority to help me solve a conflict. I need to do that in the world. For most believers nowadays, the church has no authority. You come, you sit, as long as you can enjoy it, as long as it serves you. But the minute it challenges you, and you're challenged by submitting your life to the authority of God. And by the way, at the end of Matthew 18, Jesus said to the disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That's speaking of the authority. Jesus gives authority to the church. When two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's in the context of conflict resolution, Jesus says when two or three people come together to mediate in an issue and they're in agreement together that this is my heart, I have put my stamp of approval on it too. The shame of the church is most individuals will never come. They'll try to work it out with a person, maybe. They'll get offended and they'll just, instead of going to the person, they'll go to 10 other people and gossip about it. And then they'll leave the church, get angry, and maybe it'll go to lawsuit, maybe not. But there's never, almost never this idea that, hey, why don't we together go to the elders of the church? Or why don't we together find someone we agree is a spiritually minded person? I mean, there's got to be somebody around here, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, who's got a spiritual mind. There's got to be someone around here that can know the mind of Christ in this matter and can help us figure out what to do. Paul told the Romans, you are competent to counsel one another. Now, I brought up this book just to show you, a lot of people in our church are reading this right now. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And I'm just going to give you a couple of quotes, a couple of them I've shortened a little bit. In his book, he says, there are many benefits to resolving conflicts in the church rather than in the courts. Litigation usually increases tensions and often destroys relationships. In contrast, by bringing the gospel to bear on a conflict, the church can actively encourage forgiveness and promote reconciliation, thus preserving valuable relationships. He quotes in his book, Chief Justice Warren Burger from 1982. He said, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of the church, family, and neighborhood unity. How many of you know the name Antonin Scalia? You've heard of him? Died not too long ago, I believe. Served the U.S. Supreme Court for 30 years. Well-respected in the Supreme Court. And this is what he said about this Bible verse. Paul is making two points. First, he says that mediation of a mutual friend, such as a parish priest, should be sought before parties run off to law courts. I think we are too ready to seek vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. That's Chief Justice Scalia. Verse 6, he says, but brother goes to law against brother. That's problem one. And problem two is that before unbelievers. And what happens is Paul's emphasis here, and you're doing this before the unbelieving world. They're watching. We are dragging each other through the mud. Again, I mentioned the Kavanaugh hearings. Again, I'm not here to rule in about rightness and wrongness and all that. But what I am here to speak about is how embarrassing it is. When all of those things, what happened 36 years ago, intimate details 
aired out publicly. I'm just thinking, there's some of this stuff I don't want to know. And I'm thinking, these poor people. I've mentioned this a number of times. Even on college campuses, they're recognizing that restorative justice, by getting the offender and the victim together with mediation, instead of taking this to court where this person gets to speak and has to go over these details and these hurtful things, and then that person has to share their side, and then everybody loses. Here, with unbelievers going to the public pagan court in Corinth, they're dragging each other through the mud. They're dragging Jesus through the mud and just providing entertainment for the entertainment-hungry Corinthians. And that's why he says, Now, therefore, verse 7, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Now, stop right there. Don't read the next part because you're about to get challenged big time. He says, Look, you might go to law you might win your case. You might win your 1000 or $5,000 or whatever it is. You might win. You might get your retribution. You might get your car repaired. But really, to do that, you've already lost. It's already a loss. You've lost relationships. You've lost relationships oftentimes with people in the church. You've lost relationships with the other person who you're now against. You used to be friends. But now you're against each other. Now you're enemies, your opponents. And you've lost any chance to be a witness for Jesus Christ. To anybody that's watched that behavior unfold, the accusatory finger, well, they did this and they did that. So what do we do? Paul says, why do you not rather accept wrong? I mean, if there's any places in the Bible, you know, we say, oh, sometimes the Bible's hard to understand. There's things in the Bible I just don't understand. And I quote it often, Mark Twain said, it's not the things that I don't understand that trouble me, it's the things I do understand. And this is one of those things. Paul says, it would be better for you as a believer to just swallow it, to forget about it, to forgive it. And we're talking between two people in the church. Just let it go. But that's a lot of money. Just let it go. How much has God forgiven you? Look, that person, they're not responsible for my life. God is responsible for my life. And by taking a person to court, God says, okay, you want to handle this yourself? Go ahead. But if you forgive them, then you free me up to handle it on your behalf. The best judge is God. First Peter, end of chapter 2 and end of chapter 3, we have this word about Jesus that he was wrongfully accused. He did not revile in return, but he committed himself to him who judges justly, to God. That's who you commit yourself to. You go, God, they might make a certain decision in the human court, and I might get something there, but I don't want to be outside of your judgment on my behalf. I need you, Lord to intercede for me. And God is way better. His arm is far longer. Now you say, God, I want you to get that person. I want you to get him for me, God. Now that God may not answer that problem. He may say, Steve, I just want you to forgive him. Walk away. Love him. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Those things ring a bell. They should ring a bell. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, what happens if this is with an unbeliever? What if it's me and someone who's not a believer? Do I have to forgive? Can I take him to court? Look, the world has its way of solving problems. But I've had situations in my life, I still have torn ligaments in my left hand that are going to go unrepaired because of something that was somebody else's responsibility. They refused to take responsibility, and I couldn't afford surgery. But I invited him to church. Went up afterwards, met him. We talked about it, said, hey, can you help me out with this? You know, I got medical bills. And they said, get out of here. Not helping you. I said, well, would you like to come to church with me? Now try saying, would you like to come to church with me after you've just cursed them up one side and down the other and you take them to court? 
hey, by the way, sorry you lost. You know, come on over. Let me tell you about Jesus. You'll tell them more about Jesus by forgiving their debt than by anything else you can do in their life. And that's just one example in my life. You've got to figure out how it works out in your life. But I've just found it so much easier to let it go. God has never ceased to take care of me. And I'm just praying, Lord, you can heal that thing. I've been praying for two years. Lord, heal it. And he's, he's just given me the grace to live with it. Isn't that cool? He's just given me grace. My other wrist is more painful than that one. These are things you have to work out with the Spirit. And then he says, so why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you rather not let yourselves be cheated or deprived? Look, let yourself be cheated. But that guy cheated me. Okay. Okay, now what? Let yourself be cheated. Because Paul's whole argument here, the word for cheated, it means deprived. And wronged is the same word that was in verse 1. You go to court, you go to law before the unjust. That's the same word as here. Let yourself accept wrong. And he's going to use it in verse 9 again. Did Jesus ever suffer wrong, wrongfully? Absolutely he did. Are we his disciples? Are we going to suffer wrongfully? Do we find something of Christ in ourselves when we suffer wrongfully? Do we find ourselves connecting on a greater level with Christ? Oh, now I get it, Jesus. Now I understand what you went through on a small, insignificant level. There's $1,000. You were taking on yourself my sin. All that I had wronged you. All the law I had broken against you. A number of months ago, my daughter's car got scraped up. She was parked. She came out. There's a note on the windshield. Praise the Lord for that, right? Somebody actually left a note instead of just driving away. Note on the windshield. Oh, you know, my wife, <laughs> this is what my wife did this and they misjudged and we scraped the front fender of the car. This is why I drive cheap cars because I was so thankful that the guy even left a note, a humble note. I called him up and he was just ready for me to exchange insurance information, all the rest. I said, you know what? It's an old car. Forget about it. And he was astounded. I said, yeah, you know, I pastor a church out here in Fluvanna County. I'd love to have you come visit. I'm always inviting people to church. Any excuse. You hit my daughter's car, that warrants an invitation to church. We have driving classes too. <laughs> but it blew his mind. It blew his mind. Like, could I have collected his insurance information? Would I have been wrong to get the insurance involved, to get the money, to get the car fixed and all that? No, I wouldn't have been wrong to do that. But we do not dwell in the world of what's right and what's wrong. I have the right to do that. You might. But you also have the right to forgive it, to let it go, to decide. You know, to me, a quarter panel on a car is a small thing. It's a small thing. It's insignificant. The car gets me from point A to point B. I do not worship my vehicle. You know that. Those of you that see my wife's truck that used to be my truck, 1993. I love that thing because you can't hurt it. We have one of those bumper stickers that says honk if parts fall off. I love that. It's paid for. It's been paid for for years. And if someone hits it or runs into it or scrapes it, I won't even notice it's got so many scrapes on it. Because I'm not living for this world. I'm not living for the things of this world. We've got bigger matters to attend to. We've got more important things. The gospel, eternity, life and death. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? This is a rhetorical question. But he says instead, no, you yourselves do wrong. You are acting unjustly. And you cheat or you rob and you defraud is probably, now Paul's speaking to the two individuals, it's probably a business deal that went south. He says, you cheat and you wrong and you do these things to your brethren. Shame on you. Look, 
Can I just be honest for a minute here, as if I haven't been already, but can I just say the American church is failing here too. We have failed in this area. People get upset with each other. They gossip. They run away. They avoid. They refuse. We do conflict so poorly because we will not go to the person who wronged us. And then we will not take responsibility for our side of things. Yes, they might have guilt too, but what did I do wrong in the matter? What's my responsibility? What do I need to be forgiven for? And so Paul begins to wrap up not just this section, but the previous section. Now remember, keep verse 8 in mind. You're going to need that in a minute. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous, again, same word in verse 1, speaking of the unbelieving world. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's taking them from the now to the future. There is an inheritance. I mean, inheritance is something that you own. It's yours, but you don't get it yet. It's something that comes to you in the future. You didn't earn it, but it's yours, but you don't have it yet. And so Paul's saying, look, the unrighteous, those people you're going to court before, the people that are judging you, they're missing out. They're under judgment of God. They're not going to get what God has for them in the future. They're going to miss out on that. And if you act like them, you're in danger of missing out on it too. I mean, think about Esau, the quintessential carnal man who for a bowl of stew traded away his blessing, his inheritance, his priority in the family inheritance because he lived for the pleasure of now instead of the kingdom, living for the kingdom, the inheritance later. Look, to get an inheritance, you got to be in the will. You got to be part of the family. So that's the key. And those that are in the family behave a certain way. And so Paul says, don't you know that they're going to be left out of the will, so to speak? They're not part of the kingdom you're part of. And here's the judgment. This is the way they're getting judged. They're going to stay outside. And he says to them, look, do not be deceived. Because that's the deception. That somehow I can live any way I want and still enjoy the kingdom. He says, neither fornicators. This is the word pornos. Initially meant uh, dealing with prostitution, using the services of a prostitute. But all sexual relations outside of a covenant marriage. Two people living together, sleeping together outside of marriage. You're grouped in with those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty serious offense. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, those living in adulterous relationships, nor homosexuals. Let me elaborate on two of these just for a moment, because again, you'll hear, well, the New Testament doesn't say anything about homosexuality. And here, it says it right here. It's the word malakos. It literally means soft or effeminate. In the NIV, it's translated men who have sex with men. I could give you a little more detail, but in the interest of being subtle with these things, I'm not going to. This is one of two partners in a male homosexual relationship. But I want you to notice that calling out homosexuality is not the first thing in Paul's list. We're much more readily to accept people living together and having sex outside of marriage. We'll overlook that all day long. One of the first questions I ask a young couple when they come for marriage counseling, are you living together? Are you sleeping together? And usually I tell them, I don't want to know, but if you are, you should repent because that's sin. So we'll overlook those things and we'll run right to homosexuality. But notice it's not first in the list. And number two, it's as bad as those taking each other to court. That's the comparisons Paul making. You people that are taking each other to court are in danger of being outside the kingdom just like these people, people who are living in these ways. So I think that's got to stop and make us think because what we do is we elevate 
the danger and the pronouncement of homosexuality, that's really bad. But if I take someone to court about something, well, that's not so bad. Look, we do this all the time around here at the church. We see and help people through cases. There's some brilliant minds in this church, people that love you and love both of you in this situation and want what's best for both of you. We're committed to seeing reconciliation. The world, they could care less. It's a job. For us, it's not a job. For us, it's family. So we're committed to seeing people work these things out. Instead, it's horrible. So homosexuals, nor sodomites, again, you just can't argue. People will argue the words, and maybe that meant male prostitution, and just any way you slice it, you just can't argue it. Nor sodomites, this literally is the word male plus the word intercourse. Again, these are things that were common in Greek culture. Nor thieves, so there's more in the list. Nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. All of these, he's saying, all of these are people doing things and living for the now. Living for the pleasures of the now, the money of the now, the material of the now. The whole focus, the whole emphasis is on the now. And Paul is saying, you can have it now if you want it now, but you'll miss out on it later. If you live for the now, then you will miss the future. And you will be like Esau, having traded away the blessing, the kingdom of God for a thousand bucks. If you could buy your way to the kingdom, how much would it be worth to you? How much would it be worth? How much is heaven worth to you? Worth a thousand dollars? But we know that the kingdom was bought for us by the precious blood of the lamb. So you get the comparison I'm making. Whatever that person owes you, I hope it's enough. Hope it's enough. And when you want to get it, that it's enough to be willing to give up the kingdom for. Again, we're talking about people that have this lifestyle of litigation, this lifestyle of always being offended. Things happen, one time things happen. All of these things are lifestyles, ongoing sins. But look what Paul says. He doesn't leave them hanging there. Verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. You guys in the church, you were no different than them out there. The only difference between us and them is but. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Did you notice all of that is passive? It's not something that you did or you figured out or you got your act together or you figured out how to get free of being a thief. You figured out how to get free of homosexuality. And by the way, there is a difference between same-sex attraction and homosexuality. One can confess same-sex attraction, but choose not to indulge it. One can confess attraction to another man's wife, adultery, but choose not to indulge it. So please, the rhetoric of the day won't differentiate between same-sex attraction and that your genetics cannot make you engage in a sexual act with another person. It might make you predisposed to a desire for it, but genetics can't make you do that. And they have found no gay gene, by the way. This is a side note. But he says, that's what you were, but you were washed. That's what happens when you're dirty, you need to get washed. And Jesus washes, cleanses. Some people deal with the guilt, the shame of their past life. You feel dirty about where you've been and what you've done. And you need to know, Paul says, you can be washed, cleansed. And you can be set apart for God, that's sanctified. And you can be declared innocent and guilt-free. We spend so much time trying to justify ourselves. But here Paul says, and Jesus can justify you. He can make you, declare you 
right with God. 